All right, to begin this morning, I kind of want to take a little bit of a step back and revisit something that we really only briefly looked at, and I think it was a couple of weeks ago now. We saw God had just delivered that final plague on Egypt, and Moses was given permission by Pharaoh to, to lead the people out um, and to go on their way. And so we saw millions of these Israelites, they packed up their families and all of their possessions, and we saw they just marched out into the wilderness following God's every lead. And so as we kind of read it, and just, you know, looking at the Bible, it probably seems like a relatively easy journey. And I think we probably sometimes just assume that God took them on uh, the most direct path. But I want to show you a map real quick. I don't know how well you can see it, but um, up here, I guess I have a laser pointer. Um, Up here at the top of this map, that's where the Goshen was where the Israelites were in slavery, and there's this road, it's called the Way of the Philistines or the Way of the Sea, and this would have taken Israel directly into the promised land of Canaan. Um, If you, you know, use the little thing to tell you how many miles it is, it's like a 175-mile route, and, and that probably would have been a pretty scenic route. It was a widely traveled road, so it would have been pretty easy for the Israelites, even though there's so many of them, to, to travel uh, that road with large numbers of people. Now, just for reference, I, I don't know if I did this right or not. I tried, but uh, this distance would be, for us, as just a reference, this would be from, like, here to Indianapolis in a straight line. Um, so, you know, just from here to there, straight line, not following our roadways. And so this would take, in a car, a little bit over two hours. And and walking, it says it would take like three and a half days without any stops. Now, obviously, with millions of people traveling together, you're going to need to stop quite a bit and sleep and eat and that kind of stuff. So it's going to take a lot more than three and a half days to get there. But let's just say a month at most. I, I mean, that's not too bad, given that they are about to go into the promised land. Uh, but that's not the path God took the Israelites on, though. And if you look at the map again, I, I don't know how well you can see it, but that red, that red is what most scholars assume, they call it the traditional route. There's different views, but that's the actual route that God took them uh, on to the promised land. And that's not the most direct route at, at all. It's not the shortest distance because God had very different plans for them. And when you think about this, I think this is very true for us today as well. You know, God doesn't take us on the popularly traveled route that's the shortest distance with the scenic view in our lives. As we see for the Israelites, God takes them straight through the Red Sea instead of around it. And then he, they head south, deeper into the wilderness, and you see they get down to the Sinai Peninsula. And down there, that's the Mount Sinai that we saw last week where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and the law to give to the people. And so what we see is they actually, they set up camp down in that southern part for almost a full year while they constructed, you know, the tabernacle and all those parts necessary that God had, had told them to do in order for him to dwell among them. Now, for me, you know, camping in the barren wilderness for a year seems like a bit much. And it, it makes sense that the people began to, to grow restless during this time because, as you see, they're traveling in the opposite direction from the lands that God had promised them. But then I think if you stop and really think about it from God's perspective, I think this makes perfect sense. Again, we see that they had been in slavery for over 400 years, and the Bible makes it pretty clear that that they had, for the most part, completely forgotten God during that period of time. 
And so what we see is God's essentially giving them this time to, to detox from all of those false gods in Egypt, and he's trying to reconnect with his people before leading them into those new promised lands. As we talked about last week, God needed to be sure he was the only God they worshiped and followed. He needed their obedience. And so this is where the story picks up for us this week. Finally, after almost a year, God begins to lead them into or towards the promised land. We see that God, he goes before them as their compass, leading them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night, which would have been a pretty awesome thing to behold. And then it tells us in Deuteronomy 1-2, it takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road. Now what this actually tells us, the Bible scholars believe that Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai are the same mountain, they just have two different names. So essentially what this is telling us is that the Israelites are an 11-day march from that brand new life that they had been hoping for. Again, it's probably going to take a little bit longer than 11 days, but, but still they are so close to those fertile lands that they have been waiting for centuries for. And so it tells us that it takes them 40 years to make that 11-day journey to the promised land. Listen, all the people over the age of 18, they spent the rest of their lives wandering in the wilderness until they died. Now, how does that happen? You know, is this some, like, did they get lost on their way? You know, they're so close to, to getting there. Well, here's really what we see happens. God led them right up to the border of the promised land, and he commanded Moses to send uh, 12 spies into the land to report on the food and fortifications there. So, so Moses obeys. He sends one spy from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they all go, and they gather this report, and they bring it back to the people. And so here is what they reported. They said, we went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. This land, it was everything that they had been promised and more. There was plentiful food. There was, you know, this fertile lands for crops and cattle. But the race of giants lived in the land. The fortifications were well built. The people there were in greater numbers than they were. Now, we see that the, the one of the spies named Caleb, he did his best to, to qualm the negativity. But what we see is that fear is contagious. He, he says... It says, then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephahim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephahim. And, and we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same them. And so we see God took them directly to the doorstep of the promised land that they had been waiting for so long, but they followed their fear rather than their faith, and that's what cost them. God punishes them for their rebellion. This is what God tells them. He says, your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in this wilderness. Here they will die. And so here's how we find God's 
chosen people just wandering around in the wilderness. Now, fittingly, this period in Israel's history is called the wandering. And they followed God around the desolate lands for 40 years in the least direct path possible to their final destination, except what we see is this time this was due to their own poor choices. Kyle Eidelman, he defines the wandering that we're discussing this morning like this. This is what he says. He says, wandering is living in the space between where I started and where I want to be. Wandering is living in the space between where I started and where I want to be. And so what we learn from the Israelites during this period is that God often does a lot of his work in us while we are in this space. And if you think about our own lives, probably a lot of us in here today are living in this space of wandering in one way or another. And we probably find ourselves between where we are right now and where we hope to one day be. Now, again, sometimes this is just due to the fact that God doesn't take us on the most direct path, just like uh, when he took them out of Egypt, but, but the, sometimes this is just due to the fact that we lack the faith to follow where God is leading to the first place, and this is where Israel finds themselves now. Regardless of which one of these it is, though, times of wondering are inevitable for each of our stories. You know, you think about our lives right now, some of us are living between graduation and a career, or, you know, between dating and getting married, uh, between getting fired, finding a new job, um, diagnosis and remission, rebellion, repentance, you know, there's all these in-betweens, uh, between, you know, saying goodbye to loved ones and, and one day uh, being reunited in heaven. I mean, there's just, there's all of these in-betweens that we live our lives in, and, and so a big question for us becomes, how do we live our lives when we are in that space? You know, how do we actually respond to God when we are in a time of wondering? And when I thought about it, I, I think a lot of us, at least I do, I, I struggle during these times of, of in-betweens because we really don't enjoy the journey it takes to get there. I mean, if you think about it, the most common question that, that parents hear on long car rides is, are we there yet? Because as children, we don't like to wait. I remember growing up, Anytime we were on long car rides, you know, you start to get anxious and you're bored. And, and so we, to, to ease the anxiousness, we would start to tell time using Scooby-Doo episodes. And, and so, you know, we would say like, you know, we're five Scooby-Doo episodes away from Disney World or, you know, <laughs> Mamma and Papa's house or something like that. And we have to do that because we just simply don't enjoy the journey that it takes to get there. And, and obviously, it's the same for us <laughs> as adults today where we're just, a lot of us are always in a hurry. Uh, if you're like me, you like to race the GPS's, you know, final destination, the estimated time. We try to race it because we're in a hurry and we're just incredibly impatient. I, I was thinking about it. Maybe you're like me, but there are times where in Danville, I will turn into the, the Lowe's and Cracker Barrel area just to skip, you know, sitting at the lights for 15 seconds. And, and to me, I call it efficiency, but it's really just impatience. You know, that's just how we are. We're so impatient. We're in a hurry. And, and within our own lives and in our own lower stories, we do this thing where we don't keep our faith in God during the times of wandering between where we are and where we want to be. We try to hurry up God's plans. We're trying to get to that finish line because we don't like that God doesn't take the most direct path for our lives. And I think a lot of times what we end up doing is we just end up taking over completely and we decide what's best for ourselves, just like the Israelites did right here. But what we find is that this doesn't ever work out well for people when we take the reins. I read about one young man, he was set to return home to be married, but he came home a little bit sooner than was expected. He didn't notify his bride-to-be of the exact time because he was really hoping that 
he could surprise her. He, he dearly loved her. He'd been saving up his money. He was wanting to buy a house for him. And it was about midnight when he arrived, but, you know, he was just so happy. He wanted to see her, and so he went to her house. And as he came near, he saw that the house was all lit up, and he could faintly hear some music playing. And, and as he got closer and finally be able to see through the window, he saw his, his bride-to-be in the embrace of another man. His heart sank within him, and he went away never to return. Now listen, I, I say that to say, if, if Jesus came today, where would he find his professed bride? You know, where would Jesus find us? Are, are we po- patiently following his lead, or have we taken our lives into our own hands? You know, is Jesus going to show up and find us in the embrace of our pridefulness or our, our sinfulness? What we see is that, bri- uh, that man's bride-to-be, she grew impatient while he was away, and she just wanted a direct path to marriage and, and for her own plans, and so she took matters into her own hands. And it, it doesn't tell us this, but I'm willing to bet that she learned that the grass isn't always greener on the other side. And, and so she traded the man who, who loved her dearly for what she felt was a quicker path to her final destination. And, and listen, we cannot make this same mistake as we allow Jesus to lead our lives. At some point, we just all have to come to terms with the fact that God doesn't work within our time frames. God is not in a hurry like we are so often. I mean, you just look at what we have learned from the story, you know, these past uh, month or so. You know, Abraham was told that, that he would be made into a great nation, but it was decades before he finally received a son to make that nation. We saw Joseph, he had this dream in his youth and of all of his family bowing down to him and then he spent the next 13 years as a slave and as a prisoner before anything good happened for him. Uh, We see Israel, they were set to become this great nation but they spent 400 years in slavery. Moses was a shepherd for 40 years in the desert before the burning bush appeared. The Israelites were free from Egypt and ready for the promised land but they waited a year in the desert as I said before they could make that journey to the promised land, and then that 11-day journey became a 40-some-year journey due to their lack of faith. The question really becomes for us, why does God take his time when unfolding his story? You know, why does God lead us in, in such indirect pathways in our lives? Well, I think what we learn from the Israelite story here, at least what we're supposed to take away from it, it seems clear that, that God is more concerned about who we are becoming than about where we are actually going. You know, for the Israelites, we see God, he's trying to do some work in them along this this 40-year journey of wandering so that they can try to get some things figured out, you know, right some of these wrongs, get their their problems straightened out because they have time to think in the wilderness. God's trying to get their hearts ready so that when the time comes again for them to cross into the promised land, he wants them to be faithful this next time. God is just ultimately more concerned about who they were becoming than about where they were going. And obviously, if you think about our lives, this is still true for us today. Again, we want to rush to that finish line, all the while God is still trying to mold us into who he wants us to be along the journey. Listen, the work that God does in us in the in-between moments in life is often more important than whatever it is that we're waiting for. God does some of his best work in us when we are in the wilderness. And simply put, wandering is just a part of becoming who God wants each of us to become. Now let's look at how Israel dealt with the wandering in the wilderness. We see as they trek around following God from, from place to place, this big theme begins to emerge where we see them constantly whining and complaining. 
Now, when you go, you know, dig a little bit deeper about why this is, I, I think deep down this is just due to their lack of faith in God. Uh, really, what we find is unbelief and, and unfaithfulness naturally leads to whining and complaining. I mean, you just think about some of the reasons that, that we complain. Go back to the, you know, the, the long uh, car road trip. You know, you think about it. A lot of times we don't trust the driver enough, and so that's when we start backseat driving, or, and we don't trust them to get there in a timely manner, so we start complaining about how long it's taking. It's just that's one of the reasons we complain. We don't trust enough. And so we see this lack of faith is often demonstrated through whining and complaining. Before they ever even made it to the edge of the promised land, we read that they grew tired of the system of travel that God had put in place for them. We see that each tribe, they had this specific time and this specific order that they were supposed to pack up camp and, and travel together in this, you know, specific order. And they just didn't like how much work this was taking. It was just a big hassle to them. And, and so it tells us now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. Now, God was ready to destroy them. Just like we saw last week at Mount Sinai, he was, he was ready to destroy them for this, but, but he relented. And, and a little bit later, we see they began complaining again. This time it was about the food that they were left with. Uh, it tells us the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also, the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Listen, God was miraculously providing them with this food called, this bread called manna every single night, and they were just tired of eating the same thing, so they started whining for meat. Now, what we see is that, and they're wondering, God would miraculously provide for them, and they would find something new to complain about. And this is like a pattern that just happens again and again. We see they, they complain about water, and so God gives them water from a rock. They complained about food, so God sends them uh, manna and quail so that they have food. And we also see God made it so that their clothes and, and their sandals, they did not wear out while they wandered in the wilderness, and yet they still continued complaining. And really what we see from this whole situation and what we find is that complaining is contagious. It started with a, a small few that Moses referred to as the rabble. Right? Some translations call them the riffraff. But soon, we see that everyone in Israel was complaining. We see even Moses' own brother and sister started complaining about him, and God punished them for it. We see Moses' sister, Miriam, she ends up with leprosy as a punishment, and she had to leave the camp for seven days until she was considered clean again. And that was all because she was complaining. Listen, when it comes to complaining, it just takes one person to get the contagion rolling. You know, you think about it, we see this in families. We see this, you know, with groups of friends at, at work, at school, and, and especially in churches. Complaints just, they spread like an infection, and it's toxic for anyone who gets involved in it. Really what it does is it makes us pessimistic people, and it sucks all the joy from life that God wants us to have. They've done a lot of studies, you know, scientists and psychologists and stuff have done studies on the effects of complaining on a community and they have found that it is always detrimental. Uh, years ago, researchers at the University of Denver, they looked at couples who were in their first 10 years of marriage, and they found that one of the highest ways to predict whether those couples would stay together or not is by their complaining and whining patterns. They found that in marriages where there are five or less negative comments, this is whining, complaining, and criticizing, 
per 100 comments, that marriage had a great chance of being uh, successful with them staying together. But in marriages where there are 10 or more negative comments per 100 comments, they found that it becomes one of the most reliable factors in determining that that uh, couple is not going to make it. When you think about that, five or less to 10 or less, that is not that much more negativity. One psychologist points out, this is one of our modern psychologists, he said complaining for 30 minutes a day can actually cause physical damage to your brain. He says this is because exposure to negativity impairs the part of the brain used for problem solving and cognitive function. And he says this adversely impacts the way that we retain information and our ability to accommodate uh, new situations. And I, I read a little bit more, and what, what they, he really says is that this is, goes for the, the complainer, the person complaining for 30 minutes, and this also is bad for the person who has to listen to the complaining for 30 minutes. So listen, we just have to get away from this complaining and this whining attitude. We see that the people of Israel, they're on this journey, they're whining and they're complaining nonstop. They see every single situation around them as better than the one they're currently in. Whether this is something from, you know, the past or someone else's situation, anything is better than what they've got. Listen, God was more than gracious with them. As I said, he provided for them in the midst of, of their complaining. He kept providing for them. But eventually God has just had enough of the complaining. This is what we read. He, he says to Moses, tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat, and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day, or two days, or five, ten, or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him, saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? Listen, God gave them exactly what they wanted, didn't he? And so now really what we see in this moment is that God, he's giving them per some perspective. And really that's when we are complainers, that's really what our complaining needs. We just need a little bit of perspective. We need to really remember how blessed we truly are, how much God has, has really provided for us. One person pointed this out. They said, when other people take a long time to do something, they're slow. Uh, when we take a long time, we're thorough. Uh, when they don't do something, they're lazy. But when we don't, we're too busy. When they succeed, they're lucky. But when we do it, we deserve it. You see how perspective can, can change a situation? John Ortberg says that what would really change our lives more than anything else is if we could look at these different situations that we're facing in life where we think that they are unfair, if we could just look at our lives and say these four words, it could be worse. Now instead, I think what we often tell ourselves is I deserve better, but if we could just tell ourselves in these situations it could be worse, then we would start to finally have some perspective. Instead of, you know, coveting the, the neighbor's house or their possessions, it, we should look at our house and our stuff and just say, it could be worse. Or next time you're upset with your spouse and uh, before you complain about them behind their back or, you know, nag them to their face, maybe you just say to yourself, it could be worse. Next time when the restaurant messes up your food, instead of causing this big scene and, and complaining, just say to yourself, it could be worse. Listen, there's a testimony told by this one woman who went on a short-term mission trip to the island of uh, Tobago, and she worked in a leper colony there for about a month. You know, on the night before she left, she, she gather, gathered up some of these lepers for, in the colony for one final time of worship before she were, went on her way. And as she stood before them, she asked, is there anyone who has a song request tonight? Now, at once she says there's a hand that, that went up to, uh, towards the back, 
And as she looked, she saw that there was this woman back there with this disfigured face. She didn't have any ears, uh, no lips, and no nose. Now, her, her hand that she was raising, it was also missing uh, all of her fingers. And she says she called on the lady and says, is there a song that you want to sing, ma'am? And the lady says, could we sing that hymn, Count Your Blessings Again? You know, you think about that, it could always be worse, couldn't it? And so we look at the Israelites and, and their story, and I think we're tempted to think, at least I am, you know, I wouldn't have complained about that. You know, I'm not going to be complaining if I'm receiving free food from years on end. I'm not going to be complaining if my clothes and, and my shoes don't ever wear out. But really, we got to be real with ourselves sometimes when we put our, you know, we're reading scripture and, and we're thinking about these people. I mean, I, I, for me at least, but maybe a lot of us in here, most of us struggle to eat the same thing for two days in a row without complaining. You know, a lot of us aren't good at eating leftovers. And, and so we just need a little bit per, of a perspective to see how blessed we truly are in our lives. Listen, this constant complaining, this is a big deal to God because whining is the opposite of worship. Worship is giving God glory for who he is and what he has done, and whining is ignoring who God is and overlooking what he's done. It's just simply the opposite of worship, and as we have been talking about over these past few weeks, our lower story, our stories are supposed to be all about giving glory to God. Look at what, what God says to Moses. He said, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all of the signs I have performed among them? God, he, he's essentially asking, when is enough enough? You know, after everything I've done, how are they still complaining even more? And, you know, with our lives today, here's how, what we see with, with Christians who struggle with complaining which is actually all of us <laughs> at different times, but here's what complainers say. Everything God asks of me is too much, and everything God's done for me isn't enough. Everything God asks of me is too much, and everything God's done for me isn't enough. And, and just like Israel, we lose our perspective and we complain that, that God needs to do even more for our lives. Listen, God sent his son to die for us because he loved us that much and yet a lot of times when we think about that, we say, yeah, but. No, yeah, but you, you died for me, but why don't I have that, that house yet? Yeah, but why haven't you blessed me, you know, with enough money to retire? I, I'm at that age, God. I've put in my time. Why haven't you blessed me yet? Yeah, why, but, but why haven't I gotten lucky, to, uh, the lucky breaks to follow my dreams like they have over there? And, and what we do is we whine instead of worship. Our response should be to acknowledge God for who he is and what he has done, and we should praise him for it. Now, we read that all the Israelites who were 18 or older and those who refused to follow God into the promised land, they died after 40 years of wandering. We see even Aaron and Moses, they died before ever entering the promised land. But during that time, during those 40 years of wandering, God used that time to mold his people into who he wanted them to be. These next generations, they were supposed to avoid the sins of their parents and of their grandparents, and they were to worship God and Him alone. And, and so before His death, Moses gives that new generation some reminders to carry with them in order to escape that unfaithful complaining that had plagued Israel for so long. So here's what Moses tells them. He says, now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it, and to proclaim it to us 
so we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees and law. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and to possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This morning we are left with this very same choice that that Moses gave the Israelites, life or death. And for us today, this is eternal life, or eternal death. This is life and prosperity in heaven or death and destruction in hell. Moses was very clear. He says, the Lord is your life. So we need, as a church, we need to all together today agree to choose the Lord on this day. We need to let our whining turn to worship. And even in the midst of wandering, when we are in those in-betweens, we need to listen to God's voice and to hold fast to him And we need to keep faith in God's plans and trust him to do the leading because that is ultimately how we become who God wants us to be in his story. We come now to our communion time this morning. We take the bread that represents Jesus' body and the juice that represents his blood each Sunday to remember that sacrifice uh, that he gave us through his son on the cross. As you remember that sacrifice this morning, I think we all should count our blessings and use this really as a time of worship. Um, You know, nothing that any of us ever face in this life, nothing that we face is ever going to compare to the suffering that Jesus endured for us in the name of love. So listen, regardless of, you know, what in-between that you are facing or what complaint that you may want to make to God during this time, we just need to put all that to the side right now And we just need to simply worship God and give him all the glory for the loving sacrifice of his son. That's what communion time is all about. So allow this time to to be a time of worship and allow this time to carry over into your everyday life this week as you remember to say, it could be worse.